is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. And one of our favorite topics here on Our American Stories is the story of a song. And today, we're going to tell you the story of how we've listened to our favorite songs and how these songs have shaped and defined our lives. Here's Greg Hengler. In 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, the first record player. Almost two decades later, in 1896, radio was invented. We've come a long way from the phonograph to today's MP3. How we got here is the story we are about to tell. Let's begin with the godfather of hip-hop culture, Africa Mbamba, music writer Chuck Granada, recording engineer Rudy Van Gelder, and Elton John. Way back before my time, they had the turntable that you used to have to crank up. Then it has this big fat needle with a little pin on it. And they used to get on the record and you might hear the crack of pops popping in it. And they used to hear the song coming through a horn. You might not have no bass, but you had a lot of treble, but you still was learning to dance with it. Those old 78 RPM records, the grooves were cut into shellac and were very noisy. Those 78s, the playing time was three minutes each side. The 78 was, you know, big and, and it broke. Here's Chuck Granada and Steven Van Zandt. In the 1940s, two major rivals had been experimenting with a way to create a quieter record with a longer playing time. There was Columbia, headed by William Paley, and RCA Victor, which was headed by David Sarnoff. Sarnoff had RCA, and they had everything, okay? They had radio, they invented the record player, they invented the record, the record being the 10-inch shellac 78. So, in 1948, Sarnoff going along merrily, owning the world. And this upstart Paley, 10 years younger, invites him to the CBS office and says, listen, David, we want you to hear our new product. And he plays him the first 33 album. A new kind of record LP is played for 25 instead of four minutes without interruption. As though it were a top secret mission, Paley had his engineers create a long-playing vinyl record before RCA had the chance to come out with their version. So that really aggravated Sarnoff. So Sarnoff leaves there and calls his entire office into the room and says, you know, you have exactly five minutes to explain to me how this punk beat me to the punch with something new. And they go through all their files looking for some way to combat this. And they go all the way back to their very first record. It happened to be a seven-inch disc. And they create this seven-inch 45. On the new distortion-free RCA Victor 45 RPM records. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you apple, plum, man, I forgot to do Come on my house. What are teenagers listening to on the radio? They're listening to one song, two songs, that are the most popular. So let's come out with a disc that has two songs on it, 
and we'll sell it for 50 cents. And along with the kids' records, the kids' record player, which he takes into his room by himself to play his records. And a whole new thing is born called Teenage Rock and Roll. Here's Paul Inca, Jeff Beck, and Roger Daltrey. Music was everywhere, and it was always this social event based around that funny little machine. To hear Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock, that was it. And this thing used to whir around and almost rattle itself off the table because it's spinning so fast. The rock single was the thing that really made us all want to be rock singers or guitarists or in a band. And it was the noise of it. Here's George Martin. What amazed me was the sheer technical ferocity of the stuff. Volume. I could actually see the loudness of the record in the groove. The louder you could make a pop record, the better it was likely to sell. Rock and roll was considered bad for the youth of America by a lot of people, mostly adults. Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Music was segregated during the 50s. People used to call it black music, brace music. And a lot of the people used to think that it was a little too suggestive. When you throw me like you throw me with a touch that always fills me with love. So fine. In the morning. 45 records, I think, did a lot for bringing the races together. I think it was the beginning of the end for that old race music. Here's songwriting team Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber. Jerry and I were young white kids, even though we liked to think of ourselves as black, who loved black music. And those were the artists that we wanted to write for. I first met Big Mama Thornton in Johnny Otis's rehearsal space. She was quite intimidating. She had a few scars on her face, looked like razor scars, but she could sing. A&R men, Johnny Otis, called and said, I'm doing a session with her, and I need songs, so you better come on down. She was wearing old farmer jeans. She looked like she didn't have much use for guys like us. Her actual physical being inspired Jerry. I think it probably took us about 10 minutes to write Hound Dog. I said, you know what, man, I'm not happy with this song. I said, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. It's not, it's not enough kick. I want something really dirty, like Dirty Mother Furrier, don't you know? And I said, no, they won't play that on the radio. I really want something that's really kick. Hound dog, I mean, give me a break. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of sound, the story of records, here on Our American Stories. Come here, baby. 
This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Big Mama Thornton's Everything Gonna Be All Right. And now let's return to Greg Hengler and the 60 years of songwriting team Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller as they continue to tell the story of how they wrote a song called Hound Dog for Big Mama in 1952. This prolific songwriting team wrote some of the most enduring classics in the history of rock and roll. Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, There Goes My Baby, and On Broadway. Here's Stoller and Lieber. We attempted to interest her in the song. She snatched the paper out of my hand. She said, what's this? I said, that's the song. He said, this is the song? I said, yeah. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I remember Jerry saying, it, it doesn't go like that, Big Mama. She said, white boy, don't tell me how to sing the blues. Here's Elton John. My mum came home with a record. She said, I've just heard this record, and it's the sort of music I've never heard before, she said, but it's fantastic. And she said, listen to it. You ain't nothing but a It was a total introduction to a different sort of music, obviously, which I found out later to have its roots in blues and rockabilly and folk and country uh, and gospel. Um, but, you know, Elvis Presley, you know, was the one. You ain't nothing Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Thanks to Elvis, we were able to combine a mixture of what they thought white felt and what blacks felt. Elvis brought a style of his own, uh, wiggling his behind and what have you, and singing this same song by Big Mama Thornton, and all of a sudden it became acceptable. When I heard Elvis's rendition of Hound Dog, I thought it was kind of rockabilly, didn't have any blood in it. But after it sold seven million records, it started to uh, sound better. Here's Chuck Granada. Big Mama Thornton's recording of Hound Dog in 1953 did very well. It was a 78 RPM that sold between half a million and a million copies. When Elvis's came out on a 45 RPM record in 1956, it sold 10 million copies. And that was a turning point for the 45. Meanwhile, other artists are beginning to make inroads with the 33 and a third LP. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep 
by 1954, Frank Sinatra is at the top of his game, the sweet spot for his voice and his work. At the same time, he's got this deep emotional upheaval because he's really carrying a torch for Ava Gardner, to whom he's still married, but not with. He's already broken up with her. And when he walked into the Capitol studio to record in the wee small hours, he understood that he could use this new format, the LP, for long-form expression. You ain't been Here's music writer Jody Rosen. Before the long playing record, we had a three minute long song. Now we could have a long form musical story. And so Sinatra created this crazy thing called the concept record. Frank sat with little pieces of paper with each song title on it, and he would shuffle them around so that they told the story. 16 songs, single statement. What it's like to lose your love. Frank always wanted Ava back. And what we hear in In the Wee Small Hours is a reflection of that anguish that he had lost this great love of his life. Always get that mood indigo Since my baby said goodbye In the evening, when the lights are low, I'm so lonely I could cry. This landmark album coincided with true high fidelity sound. The LP, magnetic tape, and these gorgeous Neumann microphones that gave you the most incredible richness. In creating this concept album, Sinatra solidified a format for all of music to follow. Here's Paul Anka. Number four, Love Potion number nine. Well, in the 50s, in the early 60s, the single record was the thing. If you didn't have that, you didn't get the album, which was a follow-through, and then you didn't have a career. Here's Tommy from Tommy James and the Shondells. And radio was the way you put new records in front of the public. So I loved AM radio. Be happy. Come on, everybody. It's a beautiful night in Chicago. These 50,000-watt clear channel stations, I mean, WLS in Chicago would hit 10 to 20 million people. Hi, everybody all over America. This is your cousin Brucey. It's the WABC Party. Go, go. They'd hit 38 states at night. There is nothing more exciting thing on this earth than an exploding smash hit single. Because it just it happens everywhere at once and it just goes. It's like an atomic bomb. So you knew going in the studio that everything you had to say had to be no longer than two minutes and 30 seconds, or shorter, if you wanted to get on the radio. Here's the band's Robbie Robertson. 
This was like 1965. We were zooming around uh, Manhattan. And John Hammond Jr. said, listen, a friend of mine is recording. And I said I would stop in and say hello and hear a little bit of what he's doing. So we went to Columbia Recording Studios. And Bob Dylan and these musicians were in there recording. And they were recording like a Rolling Stone. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Do the bones of time in your prime. Then you. People call, say, beware, doll. You're bound to fall. You thought they were all. And I didn't know him, but I thought, this song is really interesting. It was like a different kind of songwriting. Dion, Dion and the Belmonts was there. Here's Dion. It was great to watch. Dylan had recorded some albums with just his guitar. And now he had a few of the guys uh, from the Brill Building come up and play with, you know, drums, a full band behind him. It was exciting. But he was like, like somebody let him out of a cage or something. <laughs> he knew what he was about and exactly what he wanted to do. You couldn't sway him. Because I heard some musicians say, listen, you can't do it. He said, follow me. Here's record producer Don Wise. Like a Rolling Stone, in my opinion, is the greatest single anyone's ever made. It's a really ambitious statement to put in a rock and roll 45, just a couple of years past, like, be my baby. And Napoleon in rags, and the language that he used. Go to him now, he calls you, you can't refuse. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, in essence, of American music. By the way, the innovation on the technical side prompting innovation on the musical side, and an explosion occurs, a convergence of every form of music in America. More of this remarkable story of the American musical story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with this remarkable story about American music, basically, and how the 33, the 45, and the 78 were competing and created very different formats. And now let's continue with Greg Hengler and more of this story. Records, cassettes, CDs, and MP3s. These are not just vehicles for music. 
They are reflections of ourselves in the time we live in. As technology has evolved, each generation has had a format to call its own. This is the story of our on-again, off-again love affair with musical formats and how magical pieces of wax, plastic, and silicone changed our world. Let's return to our story and pick up where we left off with Bob Dylan's masterpiece, Like a Rolling Stone. Columbia had really become an album company. Bob makes what is perhaps the longest single ever made, uh, six minutes long. Like a Rolling Stone, all of a sudden, it becomes a hit single. Now Bobby Dylan comes front and center at WHK with song number six on the survey. This is called Like a Rolling Stone. You're going to hear the whole six-minute version here. I think that the impact on radio was huge. You know, that maybe we can offer more. Uh, this is KSAN in San Francisco. Here's Stephen Van Zandt. Around 69, FM radio started, which meant... You know, the DJs were slowed down now. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it is. And it's always changing, and it is always the same. And they were talking more conversationally, and it was all sort of being taken much more seriously. Here's Tommy James. We went out uh, with Hubert Humphrey in 1968 on the presidential campaign. He was, of course, running for president. He was the vice president. Well, when we went out on the campaign, uh, the big acts of the day were the Rascals, the Association, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett, us, you know, uh, all singles acts. 90 days later, when we get back, no kidding, the hottest acts are Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all album acts. We knew that if we were going to stay in this business, we had to sell albums. Led Zeppelin, I believe, was the first one to tell the record company they were not permitted to put out a hit single anymore because they were just so uncool. Here's Dion. All of a sudden, the 50s, people are on album covers, they're all smiling. The 60s hit, you don't smile on album covers anymore. Kennedy was assassinated. Rock and roll went down about five octaves. It got serious. Here's music writer Greg Milner. During the 70s, especially in the rock world, the LP was king. But it had drawbacks. They can scratch. They're certainly not portable. And there was no way to make one easily. You had to go into a recording studio. You couldn't just make uh, an LP at home. pocket size and instant loading the cassette tape was a good example of a technology that really didn't even pretend to be in advance over what came before in terms of sound quality it was however very very portable you record from your radio or make your own programs and the first time anybody could make a recording it's very easy to make like a direct you know from vinyl to tape recording here's music producer nigel godrich adam horowitz and Dave Grohl. I just taped all my friends. You know, I just had thousands of cassettes. 
You know, I was pirating as a child, you know, absolutely. Think about when you were a kid and you're going to school and your pockets are like this and it's like all tapes. We would make cassettes and share them with friends. And we would pass them around and then we'd go see those bands when they came into town. And we felt like that music was ours. Of course, you could also make mixtapes, so essentially you could create your own LPs. You had your cassette for a dollar and you'd put all your favorite songs on it. You could find connections between songs, you could find thematic things. If I was making a tape for you, I'd be like, you know what, I have a feeling you're gonna like these particular types of songs. You'd maybe put some romantic things on there, you'd try to be cool with it. This is how I feel, you know, about you. In this particular selection of songs in this particular order, it was a big deal. It's an extent of your arm, it's the extent of your personality. If there's a girl that you're really into, first thing I do is I go make her a mixtape. It was a document for who you were at that moment, who you, how you wanted the rest of the world to see you through the prism of the music that you loved. Here's Nina Cherry. From the south to the west, to the east, to the I remember getting a mixtape from Corona Queens. It was Spoonie G. It was just like a cassette from like a bodega. And I think I probably killed it. You know, I played it to death. It was like the first real uncommercial hip hop, sounding like it was coming off the street. And I fell in love with it. Here's Dave Grohl. The first music scene that I fell in love with was the punk rock scene. My cousin Tracy, she brought me upstairs and she showed me a record collection and she had fanzines. And you go to the back of one of those fanzines and there'd be this classified ad section where, hey, I have a band, here's my demo tape, it's only 250. Send two stamps and I'll send you a sticker and my cassette. And I realized there was this whole underground network, like, whoa, man, all of this is happening without anybody having any idea it's going on. The cassette industry is booming. For the first time ever, pre-recorded cassettes are beginning to rival sales of the vinyl disc. The thing that really drove cassette sales was the advent of a handheld cassette player that you could listen to with headphones. You the music with the Sony Walkman. The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Here's recording engineer Bob Ludwig and music writer Jason King. They came up with a really good set of headphones for these little Walkmans, and for the first time, you could take a device this big with a, with a, a good set of headphones and climb the top of Mount Everest, and you could listen to a Mahler symphony and get chills down your spine. The Sony Walkman has forever changed the way the world listens to music. That was an exciting new technology because basically it inaugurated the era of private listening. It was about walking in the street with your headphones on and the music being contained to your personal space. The idea that being able to have your own soundtrack wherever you went, that's what really, I think, changed the game. You could actually take them with you on the bus. You had the sound right there in your head. By 1983, the labels had records and they had cassettes. 
they didn't see anything really new on the horizon. And when we come back, we continue with the story of the American music business, the innovations, the cultural ones, the musical ones, and of course, the technical ones. We continue this story here on Our American Stories. continue with this final segment of this remarkable music story, let's return to Greg Hengler and the conclusion. By 1983, there were records and cassettes. No one saw a new format on the horizon. Here's music reporter Steve Knopper, music executive Phil Quarter-Aro, and recording engineer Elliot Shiner. It's a disc, a digital audio disc, a gizmo so revolutionary that backers hope it will make records and tapes obsolete. The CD sounded really, really good, but the record industry has always been deeply suspicious of new technology. Industry executives said, you know, no effing way, basically. We will never get the compact disc. And the reason was because they were so worried about piracy. When you copied a CD to a cassette tape, that was a pristine copy. But the CD was cool at the time. It sounds so quaint now, but it was, it was shiny, and if you tilted it a certain way, it looked like a rainbow. It didn't scratch, and you could play it potentially in your car. And so the consumers really liked this thing. And towards the end of the 80s, people started to rebuy their music they already owned on vinyl. They started to repurchase the same collection on CD. 18, 19, 20 dollars for a CD that was really worth no more or maybe even less than the LP. Here's music executive Jimmy Iveen and Don Was. You got a record deal, you got one song, you put 17 other songs on because they fit, and you, the people bought albums for 18 dollars that had one song on it. When we look at the decline in the popularity of the album and of sales, I think that was just way worse than some college students downloading songs for free. You know, it's like making records. <laughs> Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley, DJ Greg Gillis, and Warner Brothers CEO Cameron Strang. With the click of a mouse, Napster allows fans to download virtually any song completely free. In 1999, some college students created a file sharing program called Napster. All of a sudden, people are like, wait a minute, I don't have to drive to a record store, pay $20 to buy a CD that just has two songs on it that I like. I can sit at home and download countless albums for nothing. And it just was like, you just discovered this golden mine, you know? It just, all of a sudden, all of the music you want, it's right there in front of you, and it's very easy to download. When they put 
music up for file sharing, 40 some odd million people came. And you know, there were other companies like giving away money on the internet and you couldn't get 40 million people to come. So the power of music was the first thing that struck me. I was like, wow. The court struck down Napster after two years, but by then there were all these services all over the internet and they all used the same new format, the MP3. Here's Suzanne Vega. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. I was taking my daughter to school, and one of the parents that I didn't know turned to me and said, congratulations on being the mother of the MP3. To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella. So I went home and, and looked it up, and sure enough, it had this story about how this engineer called Karl Heinz Brandenburg had used the original unremixed version of Tom's Diner to test this thing he was working on called the MP3. My research was how to compress music in a way that it would fit through a phone line. And I already thought I'm pretty much done. Everything works well. Someone was playing Tom's Diner down the hall. Susan Vega's voice sounds like she is standing in a room. And it's very clear and clean voice. And I said, okay, I want to try to see what our algorithms do with it. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for Unfortunately, the Susan Vega's voice was destroyed. It took us a couple of years until we really could do her voice perfectly clean. I had no idea what would come next. And I met Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, and they were talking about this great new thing that was just going to be the coolest. You could play music on your phone, on your cell phone. I remember thinking, that's kind of, who cares? Like, I don't need to play music on my phone. I just did not see what the MP3 what the future was going to be. I didn't see it coming. Early 2000s are really tumultuous period because a format change. Digital technologies recalibrate almost everything about how we consume music. It's always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter. You plug it into your computer and download your favorite songs. iTunes comes along and is selling songs for 99 cents. The music industry is just reeling. The best-selling digital music player in the nation, revolutionizing the way Americans of all ages listen to music. MP3s unravel what we know about people wanting albums. And so, interestingly enough, we're back to a singles-driven culture. We take it for granted now, but then it was a really remarkable concept that I could walk around with 10,000 songs in my pocket. But then, with the era of YouTube, one of the main pieces of content that people want to upload is music. They want to upload their favorite song, they want to upload this video that they made to their favorite song, and YouTube still, I believe, is the number one music streaming service in the world. Justin Bieber's songs have been listened to, some of them have been listened to 400 million times on YouTube. We listen to music on our earbuds, over our telephones, through computers. 
when I'm listening, they'll have full albums on YouTube. People just upload them. And sometimes they'll just go to the next video. Oddly enough, YouTube is kind of like a new radio. CDs are just disappearing, you know? CDs are dead. Today we have a format which is almost an invisible format. There's an amazing amount of, you know, these streaming services. My preferred method of listening to music is Spotify. SoundCloud. iHeartRadio. Sometimes Pandora. Sometimes iTunes. I'll buy songs. I don't know. I actually like that it's not physical. I feel like it saves time, energy, money. Here's Moby. Our kids, our grandkids, will literally be baffled by the idea that at one point people owned music. Here's Meryl Garbus. Whether we like it or not, people want music instantaneously at their fingertips. I do. I want to turn on my RDO or, or Spotify or whatever. I want to say, I really need to hear Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar right now. And I can have that, you know? That is just the world that we live in. Here's MTV founder Tom Freston record producer Eddie Kramer and Amy Mann. The problem I have is discovering good new music. There's just an overwhelming abundance of material. Trying to figure out which technology, it became such a different experience on so many levels that I just stopped listening to music. It's only been lately that I've started again and kind of almost giving myself permission to jump back into stuff from the 70s that I never paid any attention to, like bread. Hey, have you ever tried reaching out for the other side? The format shift in the record industry, I mean, on average, is usually 15, 20 years. Everything's up in the air now. It, it, the next five to 10 years will be super interesting. But... The power of music will always be massive. It's about the song. It's about the art, not the medium. Music transcends the technology, the format, whatever form you give it to me in. If the quality is good, um, if I can access what I want to hear, I'm a happy man. Here's Phil Quartararo and Roger Waters. What won't change is your relationship with music. Because sometime this year, you're going to hear a song that makes you want to cry. And we human beings have been trying to work out what it is about the mathematics of the arrangement of musical notes that elicits an emotional response in us. And it's still a mystery. Here's composer Michael Tilson Thomas Rizza and Daryl McDaniels. Our lives are pretty much defined by what? I don't know, 20, 30 records? How many of a year passes when you want to go back to your high school memory? A song could do it for you. There's always that piano, that verse, that voice, that beat, that cut, that scratch, that guitar riff that's going to save your life. Here's Annie Lennox. I'm so grateful to all the musicians that made the music that I ever heard because it all went in and it enriched my life. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love. Here's George Martin. And we've seen now a hundred years of recorded sound. And we've seen the effect of that sound on people. 
and it has been quite remarkable. It's changed our lives. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Great job, as always, Greg, and you were listening to George Martin, perhaps the greatest innovator in the studio. He was, of course, the fifth Beatle, the producer of the Beatles. Another great Our American Stories music segment, one of my favorites. And to hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we have the story of the song up there and so much more. Hours upon hours, I would say probably over 100 now, just on songs and musical history. The story of American music, of innovation, of formats, and of course, the songwriters and singers and musicians themselves. The music no other country in the world produces like we do. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll put it together, produce it, and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories on the air. They're some of our favorites. The American people can write and talk, and my goodness, what stories you've already given us. What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her head In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up good vibrations. Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granato and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. It was a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company 
Uh, not only were they not aware that I was making a record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. That, that, that changed everything. Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the do. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now yeah. I'll add a tenor part to that. Right. Wait a minute. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's being, pretty confused. Being cued by your husband. <laughs> well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music. Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying, that you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before Magnetic Tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. 
And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler. Okay, wouldn't it be nice take five? Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That, that, that was an elevated musical consciousness at play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio, and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better When we can say goodnight and stay told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, blah, 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 just, uh, just like, uh, doo-doo-doo-doo. Brian like pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up good vibrations. 
vibrations. I'm backing up the vibrations. She's getting my Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on good vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know. It's like, come on, Brian, fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but you sent me there. Brian's a very deep guy, you know, so he wanted to move beyond songs about summer and, and surfing. Just saying something like, God only knows what I'd be without you, and a rock and roll song and then create this wonderful music that enables a listener 50 years later to put it on and to feel what, what they were feeling. That's great art. I may not always love The way he layered and added different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub, over overdub, over overdub until on God Only Knows, he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs. And that's how come you hear this heavenly choir. Here's Paul McCartney. We loved the Beach Boys. And it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Woo! Oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we like on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward. 
from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm. Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sergeant Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <laughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense, that album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in our American stories is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things we are learning here, we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys, barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that Rob and me. My team! The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and The Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Ruben's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip hop. They were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth? If he give me a chance, I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. 
Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenage boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in, in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video was at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them, wanting to have a good time, and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, 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 boom, bop, 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 and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, bop, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC. And I remember these guys coming out and doing Hold It Now Hit It and the crowd went crazy. 
I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like They would open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the BCs came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, Yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies, Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was to baseball. The Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip hop, People were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip hop or doing it too much. So, like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what? You guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work of the BC Boys. And we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three Jerks Make a Masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian, Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? That's ill, Joan. Well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. <laughs> Do I detect the note of jealousy in your voice, Joe? Well, if it had gone license to you, it would have gone platinum in four weeks. Anyhow. <laughs> it didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer, 
Say Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, for Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop, using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles. The head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more cowbell. With their Commodore's powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. Paul's Boutique really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody had heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is that the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. 
Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend, Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song Mullet Head on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994 that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-0, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To the Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. 
The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well, they're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.